genre. Welcome back, everyone, to Toy Story Minute, the daily podcast where we look at the movie Toy Story a minute at a time. My name is John. My name is Jeb. And joining us once again is our guest, Sully, from Sully Baseball Podcast, here to discuss with us Minute 17 of Toy Story. Yep. Beginning with Woody saying to Buzz that, yes, the bed is indeed his spot, and ending with Buzz describing himself as a unit of the Space Ranger Corps. I love Buzz's very dismissive attitude regarding Woody. He immediately says, what do you people use for your fuel? Do you have, are you still using fossil fuels? Casting in a thing. I just, I want to go into something because this is such a great sequence for both Tom Hanks and Tim Allen, but also for Annie Potts and for John Ratzenberger and for Wallace Shawn, Don Rickles, and uh, I actually, do, does, uh, do we hear Jim Varney in this scene? I don't think we... I think, I don't think we hear him until next Yeah, okay, minute. but... No, no, he does say, he does say, no, Buddy, but uh, Woody has a pull string like that, too. Oh, that's right, yeah. that's right, yeah. yeah so we do okay, hear but him. This is an all-star cast. <laughs> great sort of, you know, counter-casting, you know, like Wallace Shawn, who's mm-hmm. very small and has kind of a whiny voice, of course, is... The mighty T-Rex and everything. And, you know, mm-hmm. Don Rickles, of course, is a rest in peace, is a genius. One of the things that it's almost hard to imagine, you mentioned in the previous minute that they were talking about having Paul Newman potentially as Woody, mm-hmm. which would have been great. Oh, no, as, a, as oh, Buzz. Oh, as Buzz. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought... I thought I, I, yes. Or no, no. Actually, no, you're right. I, I did misspeak last minute. He was, he was going to be right. Woody. And oh, okay. uh, it was Billy Crystal that was going right. to be Buzz. And both of them regretted not being in this movie and then went on to be in later but movies. But you also, there was, I mean, I did a little bit of homework on this. They talked with Chevy Chase, possibly, as Buzz Lightyear. Jim Carrey, possibly, as Buzz Lightyear. Bill Murray. They may have been amazing. Who knows? If Bill Murray had done it, may, he may have brought down the house. Jim Carrey may have brought down the house. I can't imagine Jim Carrey doing it, but I can imagine the other two doing but it. But the thing that I feel was... I think that we're lucky. Someone like Jim Carrey would have taken this as kind of like a tour de force, probably, like the way that Robin Williams is the genie in Aladdin would have mm-hmm. been. Yeah. It would have been kind of a show steal. Right, yeah. and I think that Tim Allen, this was his chance to be... This was a real A-list, A-quality movie, and he was a sitcom star, and a successful sitcom star at that. And he'd done the Santa Claus, maybe mm-hmm. one or two other films, but... To really sink his teeth into a film that would have been his proverbial calling card. Having him play Buzz Lightyear, I think it's one of those things that were really, really fortunate that the casting fell the way that it did. To have Tim Allen playing that in the way that he did with, you know, the big chin, William Shatner type of performance. Mm-hmm. The the interesting thing about Buzz is he does have that heroic face, but he also, if you look at pictures of John Lasseter, especially around the age he was when this movie came out, he looks exactly like John Lasseter, just with a purple head rubber thingy yeah. yep. spaceman thing. <laughs> well, it's, just like, it's just like Johnny Depp looks like Tim Burton every time he's in a Tim Burton movie. You know, it's just sort of, it's like... Let's make me slightly more handsome is what it is. I mean, let's get down to brass tacks. <laughs> you know, I mean, like... And then we'll put my wife in there, too. Yeah, we'll put my wife in there, so Why it not? looks like it's really, yeah. really me in there. <laughs> By the way, I love that... I, I met John Ratzenberger at a Star Wars convention. What? No because way. Because he, he has... 
a role in Empire Strikes Back. Oh yeah, he does. Yeah, doesn't he's, he? one, he's like a really minor character. Yeah, he he? he comes in. He's overdubbed because they you know he comes and said, "Your Highness, the shield doors must be closed." But then there's mm-hmm. one scene where he's not overdubbed, where he says, "All right, everyone to your stations, let's go." And it's you see it. It's Cliffy. It's there's no getting around it. And <laughs> Ratzenberger is who I had a lovely chat with him because he's actually from the same town as my parents in Connecticut. So I say, hey, my parents are from Bridgeport. And, no, no kidding. Mm. And, I, and I'm a Red Sox fan. And I had my Red Sox hat on. And he was just, you know, couldn't be nicer. And he saw, I had a picture of him and Chewbacca that he signed. But there were a lot of people with, like, ham piggy banks that he was signing there, too. But he has an amazing career, John Ratzenberger, because he was an American actor living in England for a long time. So a lot of times if you saw, if you look at his like filmography that he was in, like if you look at films like Superman the movie, he has a role in. Bridge Too Far has a role in. He has a memorable supporting role in Superman 2 in Outland, in Firefox, in Gandhi. And he had all these different projects that he did in the late 70s and early 80s. And I remember when I first saw Cheers, I recognized him from Superman 2. I said, oh, it's the NASA guy from Superman 2. <laughs> of course, he came back and he gets cast in Cheers, which was supposed to be a bit part, and then he just worked so well that he became one of the main characters. Yeah. He kills it in Cheers. I've just started because I, I was not alive when it first came right. out. I've just started watching it now, and it's it's amazing. And it's yeah, and I grew up. That's it's really. A, I grew yeah. up in Massachusetts, and so there's the show that takes place in Boston, and there is he's a native New Englander in real life, so he had this sense of authenticity to him as Cliff Clavin. He's had three careers: one as being a bit part in, as I said, these huge movies that he has small parts mm-hmm. in, and then he becomes a national treasure in Cheers. And times it perfectly because he's on the show where the residual payments were at their peak. And so he doesn't have to work another day in his life. And then he falls mm-hmm. into Pixar where well, he's, he's in, in every everyone. movie. <laughs> and he's, yeah, so he's got a guaranteed yeah. role at least once and a year. And his voice is perfect in all of them. And it, he's, I just, and that yeah. he's basically Cliff Clavin as Ham. Oh, he's yeah. so Come endearing. On. He's such a know-it-all. He's so funny. And I'm just so... And when I met him, he was like the happiest guy in the world. He said, yep, I'm, I'm here. I'm at the Star Wars convention. I'll sign here if you want. Like, I, people just love me for being me. Uh-huh. And when you have a career where you stretch from the 70s to now and you've remained relevant cheers ended in i mm-hmm. think 92 93 and then this came out in 95 and so from being bit parts in blockbusters to being in every pixar film he's been steadily working in things that you never have to question since the late 70s. And it's unbelievable when you think of it. Getting back to some of this minute specifically, crystallic fusion is actually a thing. Yeah. It was theorized in 2005, and the scientist wanted to call it crystallic fusion, but then his kids told him, that's already a thing in Toy Story. And so they <laughs> changed it to pyroelectric fusion. But basically you smash together two crystals at incredible speeds and they make a whole lot of energy but it requires a lot of energy to do the fusion in the first place yeah so it costs more to produce than it does than it outputs but i guess buzz the star command uh, the galactic alliance society has gotten past this problem well this this goes back um it's also i'm sorry to cut you off but that goes back to one of the things where we talked about the last minute that this was a hybrid of star wars and star trek and one of the things that we've seen in star mm-hmm. trek is that it has 
has predicted many things that we've used technologically. When you see them in the 60s, they're using iPads and Bluetooths and everything like that. So maybe in a weird, unintended way, Toy Story predicted technology and science the way that Star Trek would. Yeah, there is actually even, and this is, I never watched the show, but there was a Buzz Lightyear cartoon with Patrick Warburton playing him after the second movie came out. Mm -hmm. And the pilot of that is about them going to the water planet of Bathios to find crystals for crystallic fusion. Mm-hmm. So that's a nice little tie-in. Patrick Warburton is in a science fiction film called I'll Believe You, which is about a... He plays this mysterious character that's calling into a radio show that people can't tell if he's an alien or a brilliant scientist. They can't quite figure out what his calls are about, and that's kind of the mystery. And do you know who wrote and directed that movie? Uh, probably going to be someone like uh, uh, John Lasseter or Brad Bird. Me. Me. You? Yeah. What? Yep, I directed what? my feature film. I directed featured Patrick Warburton, and I and he's an amazing dude. He's no an way. amazing guy. He worked with us for he he read our script, and we had a couple people in our film like Fred Willard and Chris Elliott, and a couple of the people I really loved: Siobhan Fallon, Thomas Gibson, and Ed Helms and Mo Rocca. A bunch of people I really wow. I knew Ed, I knew Ed Helms and Mo Rocca because I was a producer on the Daily Show for a little while. But we got to meet Warburton. He loved doing Buzz Lightyear in those shows, and kind of and he knew Tim Allen well because they did a couple of Barry Sonnenfeld films together. You know, he has that great, strong bottom chin quality to him that he brought to the tick. I don't know if you ever saw him when he was in the tick, but he... Oh, he, yeah. Well, In our film, he was... He, my first experience with him was in Seinfeld. Right, He's yeah. got... Just that wonderful bass voice that he brings to all of his roles where he's a big, meaty, tough guy. I mean, Mm -hmm. you look at Emperor's New Groove or any of his voice roles as well. Well, That's why we had him him be the guy making the phone call in our movie. Our film was a comedy, but he actually had a little more of a straight role in it. And he actually loved playing someone who was really smart because he always played guys who were really dumb. So we cast him as someone really smart. And he loved kind of playing that sort of super smart guy in our film. But yeah, he's an incredibly nice guy, Patrick Warburton, and he loves my mother's cooking. Aww. <laughs> so check out I'll Believe You uh, yeah. if you go on the Amazon. We exist somewhere now. I wasn't, we, <laughs> we didn't make as much money as Toy Story, but uh, yeah, we, we saw the inside of a few theaters, so there you go. Yeah, that's, nice. that's really cool. We were just IMDBing you, actually. <laughs> and wow, that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm still like reeling from, oh wow, cool, we got a director <laughs> here too. Right. So Buzz, as a spaceman, does a lot of, he does the whole talking about sci-fi technologies, he tries to laser he's very trigger happy with his laser yep. and it never does anything yeah so like but does buzz think these guys are immune what's going on i mean he's, his laser's set to stun but well it never does anything to the toys coming out we're right. back to what we we're talking about last week which is he has been manufactured and built for one specific kind of play and not mm-hmm. the malleable kind of play that woody or bo peep or anyone else has so therefore, he's in the zone no matter what. Even if they're not ducking away, he's got to. He has to react as if he's still in that world. So I don't know. Maybe he thinks they're immune. Maybe this is just he has to keep firing till he gets the thing. Maybe it's on stun. Maybe I'm amazed the way you love me all the time. I don't have all the answers on this, but I, mm-hmm. I think that it has something to do with he's just in the zone. And you see him in the zone in a way that other toys weren't. We talked about this in yesterday's show, that I Mm -hmm. think that he was a little bit of a commentary on how toys are manufactured for specificity rather than letting the child fill in the gaps. But uh, But he he does have actually a lot of similarities with Woody, 
mean, we were talking about the whole masculine archetype role, but also, I mean, we see here that he's got the voice box thing, which right. he presses the button for the dun 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 and two minutes ago, he pressed the same button, and it just did the delete to talk to star command. So there's a little inconsistency there, but I'm absolutely in love with all the phrases, the pull string phrases for Woody and all the button phrases for Buzz. Yep. It's a secret mission in Uncharted, so, you know, all this, all these things. And the fact that sometimes they also say them in their voice and they use a different recording, you know, they, they put a different audio filter over it to make it genuinely difference between the recorded playback and the actual toys speaking. Mr. Potato Head, once again, is mean to Woody, saying a truck ran over his pull string, mm. his, his voice box. It's just because he's old, right? Because Woody is 48 at this point. Buzz may have the copper wiring, but I looked a little into this, and usually that's uh, aluminum wiring is the alternative for it. It's cheaper, but it doesn't last as long. Ham might just be, you know, Cliff Clavening about how Woody doesn't have his fancy wiring, but I don't know if these toys all know how old Woody is either, that he's right. you know, a toy from the 50s. Chatty Cathy came out two years after Woody, and that was like a thing with a pull string. Right. Thomas Edison made the first talking dolls in the 1870s and 1880s, and they had little phonographs inside them, and those have not aged well. Shocking. Yeah, they you can barely tell what they're saying, and his recording process was really Byzantine. He had ladies basically recording themselves singing like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star into dolls over they didn't have any reproduction technology for the audio, so each time each doll had to be recorded individually by the women speaking into these phonograph dolls. So it is I think kind of commendable that a toy from 1957 that has been played with, mm-hmm. I mean, he's been passed down to Andy, is still, his his voice box is still recognizable. Yep. That's, that's pushing 50 years old. Yeah. Well, they don't make them like they used to. Right? It's the same kind of thing where there are toys that are maybe a little less creative in their execution as to how the toy makers make them, but they are made for versatility and yeah. for for to last long whereas now it's like okay we'll make plastic toys that might not be as well made they're for a more specific niche but it's potato potato it's mr potato head mr potato head where different toys serve different purposes yeah. i mean there there are certain toys like it's funny there are some toys that i grew up playing with that found their way into my basement or attic and when my kids are my kids are in middle school now but like when my kids were like three or four years old my brother took the time to clean a lot of them up, and there's a picture of my kids playing with an R2-D2 and C-3PO toys, and then there's a picture of me and my brother playing with the exact same toys in 1978. I had this plastic Godzilla from 1979. And there's a picture of me holding it and a picture of my son holding it the exact same way. That's there cool. Some, you know, certain Star Wars and superhero figures that we had that are still good, that still work. It's funny that there are some things they make a lot better now. And there's some things they made a lot better then. All the Kenner Star Wars toys we have are still great. And we kept them in decent condition. But I'm not so precious that I have to keep them. I'm not like the, the I almost call him the Dennis Nedry character, the, the Wayne Knight character in Toy Story 2 where I have to keep everything hermetically sealed. They're toys. They're supposed to be played with. They're supposed to be kicked around. And so, like... Yeah. If not, then they end up being Stinky Pete and they're all bitter. Yeah. Which, everything. by the way, that's another brilliant thing. I mean, there's there's the commentaries about everything that go on in, in, the, in the Toy Story <laughs> films. Some are wonderfully subtle, but that's neither here nor there right now. But there are certain toys that have 
that sense of longevity. And I think that there's, and we were talking yesterday that the archetype of some of these toys last a long time too. And so I think that it's one of the things that makes the film work is that you recognize something in your toys no matter how old you are. I got to say, I had no, I feel so old because I had no idea when I came on this that you were like, oh, this came out before I was born. I said, I had my college degree when this film came out. Well, we were born just not barely, long after just that. Just barely born. Kid and baby, respectively. Yeah. yeah. All right. You're making me feel a lot younger, though, because I always feel older than most of my peers. Were you I, held back? What was, why, are you, why are you feeling older than... No, I'm, I, it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm 20. 26 and I hang out with a lot of early 20 year olds. I even know, you know, I know some people who are 16 to 20 who are, they don't remember 9-11 or Columbia or or Columbine or any of these big, these big moments that kind of make your childhood, like their big footnotes growing up. Like my mom will talk about knowing where she was when JFK was shot and I will know where I was when 9-11 was, but there are, there are celebrities and there's even, I mean, I listened to a podcast that one of the members, it's all about generational differences. And one of the members is 16 years old. And so she wasn't alive for 9-11. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, I do remember. It's, I do remember my history oh. teacher at, in high school who, at one point, was like, "I can't." Uh, and he, he was really shaken by this because he was like, "I can't believe that you're all too young to remember the Vietnam War." And this was what I was. This <laughs> was I graduated from high school in 1990, and I was like, "Man, that took place forever." And I, I that stuck with me because. I would talk to people who didn't remember things like the Berlin Wall coming down or the Challenger explosion or, you know, now you're saying 9-11 for goodness sakes, but the Oklahoma Mm -hmm. City bombing, like some of the big, huge events, the whole Lewinsky scandal and everything. Um, Oh, I remember Lewinsky. I did not understand any of the Lewinsky jokes. I don't understand it either. But I pretended I did. I I don't understand (laughs) I was doing stand-up comedy at that time, around 95, actually, around the time that Toy Story came out was the first time I got on stage. I was terrible at first. I got to be okay at it. I used to tour a lot down south and and do all these clubs all over the place. And man, during the Lewinsky, I I mean, it's a children's podcast here, so I'm not going to say everything I'm about to say, but (laughs) anyone who had a dirty joke suddenly thought they were a a topical comedian. Oh, yeah. Because that's what it came down to. And so it was like, uh, you know, you're not that clever. You're just, you just have a dirty joke. So, you know, relax. There are certain moments in pop culture and in current events kind of talking about where there's an easy joke to make. I mean, yeah, we're getting into it now that we have, I mean, we're not going to get too political or anything, but with the Lewinsky affair, it was a big thing. Yeah. There was a lot of good W. Bush humor. And yeah. There's a lot of, I mean, now we're in another, I mean, whenever you have something ridiculous or scandalous happening, everyone has their two cents about it. Yeah. Everyone will try to make a joke about everything. Yeah, this was in 95. There was the buildup. This was right around the time Clinton's presidency was taking a turn. For the positive, because the first two years of his presidency were kind of disastrous. But, I mean, he had a generally good... I mean, this is not a 90s history podcast, but there was a really good run of Clinton years where everything looked just fine and dandy. Well, yeah, that's why... But, of course, that never lasts long. I know, and that's why we had enough time to worry about interns and everything like that. Who's who's doing what with the president, yeah. Yeah, that that became... We had had time to think about that. Whereas, if that kind of thing happened now, it would be... You look at like the news now, and it's like, oh, there's a scandal every week, if if even that. I mean, I, it's interesting. This if if the Lewinsky thing happened now, we'd be like, oh yeah, of course that kind of thing happens. <laughs> the news cycle is too fast now. I mean, this was still like a couple people I knew had email, 
when this film came out. I didn't have an email address. <laughs> the idea of the internet was, what are you talking about? You know, you still, so still cable news was the rapid-fire news cycle, and it could be contained and controlled in ways we thought it was out of control then. We, had, we couldn't even fathom the concept of social media back then. And it was also an interesting time movie-wise. When you really think about movies from, in my mind, I've kind of earmarked it from the fall of the Berlin Wall to 9-11, that you saw a kind of American movies had no idea what to do with villains for a while. Oh, yeah. It's a cultural decade where mm -hmm. there's no, I guess, national villain. Right. Because we, we were we really want. doing the whole moose and squirrel, you know, Russian villain, and we weren't yet to the... Ivan, uh, we, were, we didn't know Ivan Drago, yeah, but we... We weren't yet to the Middle Eastern villains, and we had things like yeah. German terrorists. I think it's even more than Middle Eastern villains. I'll get to it in a second, but you, you saw films... And Toy Story falls on this too. There's no villain in Toy Story. You know, you can maybe oh, right. yeah. you can maybe say the kid next door, Sid, but he's not a bad he's an person. Obstacle. He's just playing. Yeah, he's an <laughs> obstacle. He's yeah, more, less yeah. than a villain and more of an yeah. obstacle. And you saw that villains in that period of time either became something you tried to understand, like Hannibal Lecter, or it became like you saw films from the point of view of the bad guys like Goodfellas, like Pulp Fiction, like Usual Suspects. Or you saw a film... Fight Club. Yeah, Fight Club. Yeah, Or you saw... Or Fight Club is more of trying to understand the villain. Well, Fight Club is a little bit of both. Right. <laughs> the villain is inside you, kind of. And, and Seven is yeah. that way, too. Seven is there is a villain, but it's also, are we part of the villain? Are we as bad as the villain? And then... Mm -hmm. And then... And Fargo was a little bit that, too. And then you had films where the villain was something larger than humanity like an iceberg, like a meteor about to hit us, like a twister, like dinosaurs that mm -hmm. are, you know, so it's more of something's bigger than us that we have to take on. It's like Independence Day. We laughed at the idea of skyscrapers in New York blowing up. That became a joke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yes. it because, yeah. of course, the sky, of course we can't be defeated like that. You know, Godzilla ran around New York in 1998 and when he destroyed buildings, oh, it was for humor. They blow up the freaking, you know, Madison Square Garden and the Flatiron Building for laughs. And I think it was part of a sense well, of us feeling... like get into how bad the 1998 Godzilla was. <laughs> but it, it reflected yeah. a time where we were winning. We were winning. There was no national villain mm -hmm. that we had to worry about. There was no right. collective villain. And I think that you saw well, post-9-11, it wasn't necessarily just like Middle Eastern terrorists or something, it was, became something dark that we had trouble understanding. Like we, like so many films, we wake up one morning and something horrible is happening. Whether it's the Joker, like yeah. compare, compare Jack Nicholson's Joker and Heath Ledger's Joker. Those are two different eras. Mm -hmm. One is played for laughs and okay. kind of cool and we're seeing from his point of view. And the other is something terrifying that we can't understand. And I think that those... Are that, that, those this was the time, I mean, the 2000s were when the superhero movies started coming into being with yeah. you know, Spider-Man and X-Men in the beginning of the decade. And these have like, oh, some mystical strange thing happened to you. And yeah. you don't know how to control it as like a central, even to this day, obviously superhero movies are still a big thing. Oh, we have some strange thing that we don't understand. And sometimes that's a bad thing. And I mean, you look at like the Avengers or, or some of the recent Superman movies where there is the same kind of property destruction or something. And maybe it's just because of social media and all that. But people are still saying, wow, this is a terrible thing that has happened 
and that's actually of note. You know, actions have, right. even if it's not a realistic, some mm-hmm. sort of consequence. Yeah. yeah. It, it's getting out of control now. Like, every film has to have a building exploding and people running from it going like, okay, okay, not everything has, you know, like... I get has, it. We get it. We get it. But it reflect. you know, it's... Every era has that reflection. I mean, you see the Cold War. You see even like something like when people stopped trusting the government in the 60s and 70s. What kept the beaches open? The the government in Jaws. You know, the mayor would not shut down. That they're, they're they're not. They're little touches like that. Like the government's keeping UFOs from us in Close Encounters. That there are images of the Cold War all throughout the Star Wars movies. Or that they're even well-meaningly trying to keep us in the dark like an et or or things like that it's it's also uh it's interesting because i was thinking now that we're discussing kind of the destruction of action movies and stuff one of the things the great things about the incredibles is there's a huge fight scene in the middle of a city and no property gets destroyed yeah there might be some street damage but there's no i mean when you watch a movie where superheroes are plowing through buildings you know that people are dying yeah. in the incredibles no like one maybe maybe mirage is that her name yeah yeah i think she well no she might die it's ambiguous yeah i i didn't even realize that the incredibles is a very bloodless movie until now yeah mm-hmm. but right. it's interesting that we're like, talking the, the, we're, yeah. we're talking about this era that the film came out but it did not become a time capsule of that era. There's some films it's impossible to watch without also explaining what was happening in the world at that time. Even some great films, a film like mm-hmm. The French Connection, which I think is a great movie, but it is a reflection, it's a time capsule of that period of time. I think a film like Pulp Fiction is a time capsule of the 90s. I think that this, the fact that it is timeless, it didn't really reflect the 1990s the way that some other films did. And I think that's one of the things that, why we're still talking about the film. It's interesting because there are references in this movie, but the, uh, the most recent reference is like Jurassic Park, or there's some references Back to the Future, or Star Wars, and those are movies mm-hmm. that were years before this movie. I mean, Jurassic right. Park's the most recent movie referenced in this. You have references going back to the 70s, so it's more of a general pop culture than a snapshot. I mean, yeah. and you were fun- Tom Hanks is yes. Tom Hanks recorded his lines in like 93 and 94. Yeah. So there is this movie was not a ooh, cutting edge, here's all the trends. And that's why it works. Kind of movie. And and there's also the layer of this isn't a movie about people, so you you know if you have like a kid watching this, you don't have them thinking, well, why doesn't Woody just call them on his phone or whatever? Yeah. Like you would see in a movie, that was a big problem in the two thousands as well. With every movie, oh, it could be solved with someone calling someone on their phone yeah. or mm-hmm. or using some other you know instant technology, and they had to write around that. And I think they're only figuring out how to write stories where people, unfortunately for the movie, have their phones and have their technology, they're only now getting around to writing those well. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's wild when you watch action films from the 90s now, and you see how many problems could be easily solved by a text. You know, how many times mm-hmm. people are racing to get somewhere to tell someone something. Like, just call them on yourself. But I mean, yeah. even romantic comedies. Yeah. You, yeah. That's another thing that 9-11 kind of messed up, because um, this is apparently the 9-11 minute. 
I was about to say, is that, of all, uh, of all the know, tragedies yeah, of 9 11, I don't think romantic comedy is high up there, but keep going. I'm listening. Well, no, I'm saying it's it's a thing that's weird when you look back at it. I mean, you look in the top of my head, I came up with Liar Liar. Jim Carrey runs into an airport screaming and runs, you know, to the side of the plane. Even in Toy Story 2, there's it's a little more justified because they're toys, but right. there's a lot less airport security. But also, he could have just texted her in Friends. Ross could have just texted Rachel if this had taken place a few years later mm-hmm. instead of having to, you know, do a dramatic thing with the plane. It's incredible how quickly so many movies are, are a snapshot where this one, especially because they're not people, they're toys, has aged incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, no argument for me. No argument for me. Let's talk about how awesome Don Rickles is. Oh, oh, God. Yes, please. I mean, he's a genius he, he's anyway. He's perfectly cast, too. He is so not a family-friendly comic. If you ever watched... Go on some deep dives with oh, him yeah. right. on YouTube. There is a clip on the Dean Martin roast where he roasts Ronald Reagan. This is back when Ronald Reagan was the governor of California before he became the president. Oh, dear. It is one of the funniest pieces of comedy you will ever... like. It's to the point where I thought Reagan was going to vomit. He was laughing so hard. And it just keeps going and going. And, and he, you know, he says stuff which is, there is no political correctiveness. There is no yeah. pulling any punches. <laughs> and to include him and adapt him to the humor mm-hmm. of a family film and introduce that voice, that cadence, that style of humor, he probably made brand new fans and probably introduced himself to oh, a brand yeah, new generation. Definitely. I mean, sure. with us, like we were talking about off mic, where that you know we're so much younger that we were children when this came out. Don Rickles, my first knowledge of him was this movie as yeah. Mr. Potato. Head. Yeah, yeah, as Mr. Potato. Yeah, it, it even goes further. Like I didn't watch Princess Bride before I watched Toy Story. Right. Yep. I might not have even watched Forrest Gump or you know any. Yeah. Or even, I might not have even watched Big before watching this. Yeah. So this I think might this have been was my probably the first movie. Yeah. First Tom Hanks movie. Yeah. First Wallace Shawn movie. I'm guessing yeah, it's... I mean, I wasn't watching my dinner with Andre yeah. when I was... Right. <laughs> and the minute they had uh, Lee Erme as the voice of the... The Sarge, the Sarge, yeah. I started laughing the minute I hear his voice because he was the drill sergeant in Full Metal Jacket. And he... Oh, yeah, and he, mm-hmm. he was very, very, like, not family-friendly in that. Well, not only that, was one of the most terrifying characters you ever saw in a movie. I mean, the, open, the first oh, yeah. half of that movie is basically... I mean, they had a scene where he's yelling right into the camera at one point, and it's horrifying. And that you include him basically using the same voice, kind of playing the same character in a kid's mm-hmm. movie is, you know, what it is. It's He's a perfect soldier's voice. He was a soldier. Yep. But for mm-hmm. the audience, if you recognize that voice, the same way you recognize John Ratzenberger from Cliffy, it didn't matter if the kids knew it or not. And the film didn't rely on that. There's so many times... When you see a movie, they try to... When I see an animated film who has like 5,000 stars in it, and it's like the only reason why this joke works is it's Katie Couric's voice or it's whatever, whoever it is right. voice doing it. That's not a very strong joke if it relies completely on the casting. But here, oh, yeah. they are able to... If you knew, the voice, yeah. If you yeah. didn't know who Don Rickles was, it worked. And if you did know who Don Rickles <laughs> was, it works even more. And that's one of the genius yep. things of this, of the many genius things of this movie. Do you have any um, more notes on this movie? I mean, this has been... Uh, fascinating uh, time with you here. Yeah, I just uh, I, I love I love this, to have you on. 
I love the sweetness of Annie Potts too, and it's subtly one of the most heartbreaking Still things. Mm-hmm. One of the most heartbreaking things in Toy Story three is when they reveal that yeah, Bo Peep got sold. Toy Story three to me, the parts that made me cry, maybe not in the in the theater, but the parts that now looking back at it make me sad are Bo Peep being gone and them calling back to Jesse's backstory. It's a uh, yeah, it does a great job of looking at the past two movies and saying. I mean, it's a nostalgia bomb. It, it came out 10 years after the last one, and that's part of the reason that we decided that we were a good age range to take on Toy Story because, I mean, I was my first year of college when, uh, when Toy Story 3 came out. You guys are Andy. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just a couple of years yeah. older than Andy. Jeb was just... I was 15. Yeah, so Jeb was, was just a couple years younger. younger. Yep. So we were right around that age, and, and Toy Story 3 is such about growing up. Like yeah, that. so... Mm-hmm. Um, my kids, yeah, it's it, it's my kids were about Andy's age from Toy Story one, when Toy Story three came out, and so when I saw oh. Toy Story three, the idea of them ever growing out of wanting to play with their toys and moving on was oh. like no, no, like they just started kindergarten, <laughs> you know. It's like no, be that age yeah. forever, and you know, and it's let me tell you, I'm I, I'm a father too, and their kids are growing older, and they're still loving wonderful kids. But you see, oh yeah, like I said, we had a purging of toys recently. It's like, yeah, they mm-hmm. they don't play with these anymore. And pretty soon, they won't be playing with any of these anymore. And one of the things I loved about my kids, that they they did play a lot the way Andy did in the beginning of Toy Story. Like, they had their stuffed animals, and they had their little plastic animals. And they would be doing... No one told them who the characters were and what their backstories were. They just created stories with them. And there's a lot of the toys as actors. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid playing like that, playing with, you know... Oh, in this one, my Beanie Baby Doberman is going to play this role. Yeah, exactly. My my Beanie Baby Doberman was definitely the Woody of my childhood. <laughs> well, my kids have a stuffed dragon named Dragon. Oh, they have a stuffed is. lion named... Lion? lion. Oh, got it, lion. one! <laughs> and they have a stuffed zebra named... Zebra? Peter. Dave. Oh, okay. I have, no idea. I have no idea why the zebra's named Dave. But yep, there that? he is. He's Dave. That's a good zebra <laughs> but, uh, name. It is a good zebra name. We still have Lion, and their bear is named Barry. Aww. They're still here, even though they're, they're starting to grow out of them. I'm like, you know what? There's Some of them are going to... Some of them we're, are keeping. Mm-hmm. Some of them are keeping. I still have my bear, you know? Oh, yeah. And my bear... Do you know what my bear's name, you know what my bear's name was? Uh, bear. Bear? Bear, bear, bear yeah, aspirin. Bear. I, I really put my back into the, his name. Just bear. Awesome. Yeah. Well, your kids inherited but, you your know, creativity. Yeah, that's clearly the sign of a great writer. Yep. Is, uh, here's oh, yeah. bear. Here's lion. <laughs> what should we here's call Dave. Patrick here's Warburton's Dave. character? Oh, let's just name him Patrick Warbert. Ooh, Warbert. 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 Right. <laughs> yes. Let's call him Patrick so, yep. Burton. <laughs> nice. All right. Yeah. Well, this has oh, been. Yeah. Uh, this has been a great time together with you. Once again, people can oh, yeah. find uh, your uh, your your podcast, Sully Baseball, on iTunes, and you're about to switch to a, a once-a-week format, right? Yeah, well, I've, I have switched to once-a-week, but we're going to switch the format to a, a call-in show within the next month or so. So we're still working that out. But just check us out at Sully Baseball, and, um, and follow me on Twitter on Sully Baseball, I, and I post all the stuff there, too. And check out Real Crime Profile on iTunes. And as always, you can find yeah. us at Toy Story Minute on Twitter. And uh, follow this podcast on iTunes and all that as well. And uh, thank you very much for coming on our show, Sully. We you know, fun. 
You're, oh, it's a blast! You're, it's a you're, blast. You've got a you've got a friend in both of us. us yes, <laughs> and listeners, you're my oh. favorite deputy. Really, they're my favorite deputy too, Jeb. Nice. Aw, <laughs> cute. All right. Well, we'll see you later for the next minute of Toy Story Minute. minute. <laughs> Good. Have a nice bye. Impressive wingspan. Very impressive wingspan. <laughs> <laughs>